You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. The Bible reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 28. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Great, thanks for the Bible reading. It sounds like it sounds good, so we're right to go. Great to have that open in front of you. And I apologise uh, for the title. It's not terrible, it's not a man coming in glory. But I was sitting down there before thinking, I know there's something I've forgotten today. And that was to do the slides for the talk. So I thought, oh no. So the actual... Title slide is, um, who do you say I am? So that's the title slide. That's the question. Who do you say I am? And of course, it comes straight out of the text uh, tonight in Matthew 16. Uh, Jesus starts by saying, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? But the really important question in this text which he asks as a follow-up, but, and he says, but, but, 
Who do you say I am? That's the question. And that's a question directed at his immediate disciples, his closest, his 12. But it's also directed uh, through scripture to you here tonight. Who do you say I am? Says Jesus. And I think it's the most important question anyone on this campus could answer because the type of person Jesus is demands an answer. It really doesn't work to say Jesus is an interesting historical figure or he's a good man who had some influence or I think he had some good things to teach and to say but that's about it. It really won't do when you have anything other than a superficial glance at the Son of Man, who he is, what he does, does what he says. To have sort of an agnostic position on Jesus, which a lot of people do, but to have that agnostic kind of position is a little bit like saying, I'm not sure that they did land on the moon. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. I'm just not sure they actually put a man on the moon. Well, what's left? Oh, well, I think uh, if it's not a conspiracy and they didn't do it, then what's left? What's the, what's the third option? Well, I think, yeah, the third option is, well, you know, it was an interesting scientific experiments, right? Like there, there's some, definitely some serious space exploration happened and I congratulate them for that. I congratulate NASA for that. That, right, is a nonsensical answer. That is a deeply uninformed answer. That's someone who knows absolutely zero about the moon landing. Only that kind of person who's completely ignorant about the moon landing could say that. You're either you're forced into, it's such a monumental event, such a well-testified-to event, you're kind of forced into one of two positions. The majority, the vastly the majority position, we actually put a person on the moon, it's happened. Or you buy into a conspiracy theory. There really is no agnosticism. It just doesn't work. And similarly with Jesus. I hate to say it because it sounds really rude, but it's just a fact. A lot of people want to have their cake and eat it when it comes to Jesus, but it doesn't work. They want to maintain that he was a good man. That he was an important historical figure. That he undeniably influenced the world for good. Most people would agree with that. But at the same time, they want to say, well, he wasn't the son of God. He didn't come back to life. He's not actually, you know, God come in human form. That's ridiculous. It's absurd. Well, you can't have your cake and eat it too with Jesus. Because his life is so radical. His claims are so extraordinary. The testimony is so amazing that you're forced to make a proper concrete decision. You either say he's crazy, he's nuts, or you bow the knee and say, you are God. And that's the question everyone needs to answer. And the Bible says here, it says in this passage, that everyone on planet Earth, definitely everyone here at Monash University, will have to give an account before Jesus when he returns. And he'll want to know, who do you say I am? He's going to ask every single person, who do you say I am? And so we need to come to some sort of informed 
decision. And it's something that uh, we need to wrestle with. Just imagine, just imagine, um, you're a man. I know it's hard for some of us here in this room. <laughs> Perhaps for all of us, it's hard to imagine what it is to be a man. Um, but just imagine you're a man. Uh, and uh, you have met the woman of your dreams. You're immediately head over heels. You're falling in love. She's falling in love with you. You hang out, you walk and talk, you wine and dine, everything's fine. After a year of getting to know this lady, one night, you decide tonight's the night, it's a candlelit dinner, and you propose. You say, will you be my wife? Will you do me the honour of being my wife? And she says, yes. She's ecstatic. And people applaud in the restaurant. Oh. I mean, they pull their head up out of their McDonald's meal and sort of applaud. <laughs> <laughs> Classy guy. And, um, but she says yes. And she goes, ah, but there's just, there's just one thing. There's one thing. You see, just recently I've sold all of my earthly possessions. I've borrowed money from my parents. And I'm committed to sailing the seven seas for the next 10 years. <laughs> We're made for each other. I love you. You've got to come with me. But I, I understand it if you can't. But I want you to come with me as my husband. Now, there is a dilemma, right? On the one hand, on the one hand, you're in love. And you think she's wonderful and beautiful and you've got to the point where you really can't imagine a future without, without her. But now tonight, on hearing this news, you're wondering, is she crazy? <laughs> Do I really not know her at all? Is this someone that's sensible to commit my life to? Well, what am I going to do here? What? And that's, I want to put it to you, what's at stake here tonight? As we look at this passage about the true identity of the Son of Man. On the one hand, we see the majesty of Jesus here in this passage. Peter sees the majesty of Jesus and it's wonderful and it's glorious and it's why we all love Jesus and it's why people are attracted to him, even people who are not Christians. On the other hand here, we see the utter madness of Jesus in this passage. I'm going to talk about it in those two sections tonight, the majesty of Jesus and the madness of Jesus. And Jesus says, you need to follow in my madness. You need to give me, if you want to be a part of me, if you want to love me, if you want to know me, you have to give up everything and follow me. You have to deny yourself, he says, and follow me. You have to put to death what you think your life is going to be and cash it in for my absolute lordship over your life. And let me warn you, it's going to be rocky. Not only do you have to completely give over your will to my will, but it's going to be tough. It's going to be rocky. 
And so we're faced with this dilemma, who the heck is Jesus to demand this of me? Who is Jesus that I might enter into this relationship with him? And so that's why Jesus says, who do you say I am? You need to be really sure. (laughs) Who do you say I am? The most important question in the world. And so let's get into it. Uh, Who who do you say I am? Well, first of all, um, the majesty of Jesus is revealed when Peter answers that question. So let's start from the beginning of that text we've been reading, chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. People say you're a big deal. People say you're obviously important. People say you're significant. You seem to be some sort of forerunner to something big happening in Jerusalem. That's what everyone says, but they're not really quite sure who you are or what kind of big thing you're ushering in, but they know there's something about you. What about you? He says to his disciples. Who do you say I am? And here's the majesty. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Old Testament kings were called, they were given the title, Son of God. So when Peter says here, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he, he, it could be a recognition that he is actually God, but at the very least what Peter is acknowledging here and seeing is that this is the long-hoped-for Messiah who will usher in the kingdom of God in all its glory, power, magnificence, to the very ends of the earth. That's at the very least what he's recognising about Jesus. He says, you're the one. He's going to make everything happen. You, you, you are the key that unlocks all the blessing that God has for us as his people. Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Your spiritual blindness has been cured, Peter. This is a work, this is a miraculous work on the part of God to enable him to see, even though he's a sinner with a hardened heart. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth, will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What an amazing promise. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I do not think this is the foundation for Roman Catholicism. That's how some people read it. I think... What he's simply saying is here to Peter and to all his disciples, actually, I'm going to give you the key to the the kingdom of heaven. In the broader sweep of scriptures, it's not that mysterious. He's simply saying you will have the gospel. You'll have the good news about me. And as you take the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? Whatever you bind here on earth will be bound in heaven. That is, 
whoever turns and repents in response to you telling them the gospel, they're in. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Whatever, whatever happens to people when they respond to you, who re, you know, sorry, when people reject the gospel as it goes out, it's confirming here on earth as you preach the gospel that they have no part in the kingdom of heaven. You, in turn, will have this power that I have to bring life and death. It's, it's a glorious commissioning of Peter that he will be wrapped up along with the other disciples with the work of Jesus. Later on, a few chapters, it actually says the same thing about any, like when two or three are gathered in my name, um, you know, I am there with you and whatever you loose will be loosed, whatever you bind will be bound. It says the same thing of just anyone gathering, any Christians gathering there. It's saying that we have the authority of God given to us as the body of Christ. And the beautiful thing here, right, is it says that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's just the place of the dead. Jewish Old Testament ancient understanding was just there's a place where dead people go, their souls, and that's where they're stuck. And the place of the dead, even to this very day, in one sense, wins, right? Death has the final say over our lives. Uh, my wife lately is really into, I think it's, I think this is right, hyaluronic acid. <laughs> Am I right? Yes. Half, about half of the people in this room right now know what I'm talking about. The other half goes, what the heck are you talking about? I call it highly ironic acid because I don't, anyway, so the... Um, Hyaluronic acid apparently is this elixir of youth. It's, a, it's an anti-aging miracle. And, you know, um, my wife is trying to turn back the years by doing something. I don't know what you do with it. It's just see the bottle there in the bathroom. I don't know whether you swallow it or put it on your head or shove it in your ear. I don't know. Maybe just look at it on the, while I'm there in the bathroom. But apparently it works wonders. And we're always after, aren't we? The way to reverse time. I have a friend. This is a bit convoluted. I have a friend who started a podcast and he's got some pretty well-known people on his podcast and he, on Instagram the other week, um, had a snippet of an interview with a guy who says through really careful diet and exercise and looking after his body and health, he wants to live to, I think he says something like 170 or maybe 190. He thinks he can do it. He's a bit of a science nerd. He's, he, he gets his bloods done and he reckons he has the bloods of, of a, like a 20-year-old or something like that. And my friend who does the podcast put on the Insta post, and I believe him. So here's this guy going, I want to live to 170. And my friend who interviewed him goes, and I believe him. I think he can do it. He's got such an amazing approach, so positive, and he's, doing, he's making such progress. What I thought was ironic about it was I, I looked at his face on the post, and I thought, I reckon he's about 45. And then I looked up this guy's name on the internet, and he was somewhere in his mid-40s. I thought, so you, you reckon you're going to live to 170? My friends think, thinks you're going to live to 170 because you've got bloods of 20, but you look your age. <laughs> Death is winning, my friend. <laughs> Death is winning. You can try as you might, do as, ingest as much hyaluronic acid as you want. <laughs> Actually, that might hasten the process. <laughs> but you will not defeat death, right? Death is the victor at the moment. Death has the final say. And here it says, isn't it beautiful? 
the gates of Hades will not overcome this kingdom. This is the kingdom that cannot be defeated by death. And not only that, everything that goes along with death, just the corrosion that happens in the world in relationships, emotionally, mentally, all that corrosion that's attached to death, that will be gone because of the establishment of this kingdom through his disciples. The majesty, the glory, the power of God, clearly seen, clearly revealed here, as Jesus is saying, who do you think I am? But here in this passage, we also see, here in this passage, the absolute madness of Jesus. The majesty, the madness. Look here. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, now that they've got, now that they've got, he is the Messiah. Lock it in, that's great. So let me tell you what it really means for me to be the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Wow. This is nuts. This is not what Peter is expecting. And friends, I want to put you, even though this is very, very familiar for a lot of us here tonight, take a look again at this and how crazy it is, Jesus' statement. Uh, What Peter was expecting was that, you know, Hollywood would be taken by storm and completely transformed. Just imagine the Coen brothers who make really cool movies, the thinking persons, movie makers, quirky, interesting, are not kowtowing to commercial interests. They've made a name for themselves for making excellent films that really get you thinking, that are engaging, that are fun to watch. The Coen brothers, just suppose they stormed Hollywood and took it over and transformed it. No more rom-coms. Actually, I like (laughs) rom-coms. But no more rom-coms. No more silly action movies that are propped up by CGI. I know what I'm talking about. I can relate to you kids. (laughs) Uh, None of these movies that are all about just trying to get the dollars in through the box office. No, they come into town, they have a massive war chest of billions of dollars, they buy up all the studios, whatever they are, Universal, Disney, Warner Brothers, they buy up all the studios, they knock down the Hollywood sign and call it Cohen Canyon, there are canyons around Hollywood, Cohen Canyon, completely transform the joint to make movies great again. (laughs) That's their mission. I'm going to make, sorry for the, I know some of you are triggered right now. But the Coen brothers are going to make movies great again. They're going to show the world how glorious movies coming out of the United States can be. They're going to take it back to the glory days when Hollywood consistently pumped out great films. Well, that's what Peter thinks 
Jesus is going to do. That's his expectation. He's going to make Jerusalem great again. He's going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to win over the religious authorities because of his powerful teaching, his miracles. They're going to all get behind him. He's going to unify everyone around his leadership, his kingship. God will endow him with the powers that bring peace and prosperity, not just to Jerusalem, but the whole world. This is Peter's expectation. And then Jesus says, you've got it. I'm the Messiah. I am bringing in the kingdom of heaven. This is the moment. This is exciting. And I tell you, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be beat up, bashed, smashed by the religious leaders. I'm not going to win them over. And I'm going to die. And then I'll be raised again. That's exciting. But Peter doesn't care by this stage. <laughs> he just isn't taking that bit in because he's going, what the heck are you talking about? This is not the program. And it is kind of nuts because Jesus has decided to pursue a picture, a vision of goodness. A vision of life and life to the full. A vision of beauty which is completely out of sync with human thinking about what is good and beautiful and holy and life and life to the fullest. Jesus is determined to go and tackle the big problem that stops us from knowing life and life to the full, which is what? Scream it out. What is the big problem that stops us from enjoying life and life to the full and knowing the full glory and power of the kingdom of heaven. What is the great problem? Sin. Jesus is going to go and deal with that in Peter's heart. With that in the religious leader's heart. He is not going to flex the muscle. The problem of the kingdom of heaven is not lack of power, lack of position, lack of hustling to get what you want. Manufacturing a better life through better diet, better location, more money, more success. Jesus says, no, that's fool's gold. A temporary fix, a momentary pleasure, but it's mist, it's vapour. Hades will still overcome you. Who wants that? No, to have life that overcomes Hades. Sin must be dealt with. But it's out of sync. And so therefore, people who don't understand it, persecute him. People who don't want the spotlight shone on them as the problem, persecute him and finally put him to death. And so you can understand Peter's reaction. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you, the madness of the Messiah. And then Jesus says to Peter, and this is pretty harsh, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is a rough day for Peter, don't you think? <laughs> this is a rough day. I feel like it's Will Smith you know, at the Oscars. He's like receiving the award and smacking someone in the face. Like it's the best and worst day of his life. And that's what you have here with the best and the worst day of his life. 
And I look at this and I honestly think, man, that's pretty, all things considered, because you know what, all the other disciples were thinking this as well, they were just too timid to say anything. So why is Peter's neck on the chopping? Why does he get such a harsh rebuke? Satan. Well, I don't think Peter should take this too personally. And it's helpful for us to understand what's going on here. Remember back in the beginning of Matthew when Jesus was led out into the wilderness and he didn't have any food for 40 days, 40 nights, and then he was tempted by the devil? And a part of the temptation was Satan took him up onto a, a, some hills nearby so he could look over all of the surrounding area, all the kingdoms, the plains, and he said to the Son of Man, I will give you all of this. Satan said to Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Which, by the way, is a part of the Old Testament promise for the kingdom of God that Jerusalem would rule over all the earth, Satan says, I will give it to you. Without any of this cross stuff, without any of this death stuff, I'll give it to you. You can do with it what you want. You'll be the king. All you've got to do, Jesus, is worship me. That's all you've got to do. And Jesus, it says there's being tempted. This presumably is a tempting proposition. And here we see it again. Satan getting Jesus where he is vulnerable. Through his nearest and dearest. Satan reissues the offer through someone he loves. The reason why he says there, right, you are a stumbling block to me, is because this is so enticing. Peter, you're meant to be my friend, my supporter, you're meant to be on my team. And you are the conduit through which Satan is re-offering this temptation to do it the easy way. Get behind me. So it's an emotional response. It's a genuine emotional response of Jesus expressing his anguish. But at the same time, it is a warning that, Peter, you've got to have a paradigm shift. You've got to have a radical change of thinking if you're going to be part of the kingdom of heaven. You've got to understand that I'm, you know, I'm marching to the beat of another drum and you must too if you want to follow me and be a part of my kingdom. And that's why it goes straight on to this next bit, and this is the so what bit. So we've got the majesty of Jesus, we've got the madness of Jesus, and that leaves us with the so what, what does it mean for us? And I, I think it's really interesting how here, and a little bit funny how the, the narrative here, the story, the text does not resolve this, right? You've got this really tense moment between Peter and Jesus. Jesus had just said, you're Satan, get behind me. And then you think it'd be nice, it'd be nice if the gospel writer kind of showed how the tension was resolved. And then Peter said, I'm really sorry, Jesus. And Jesus said, don't worry, dude, it's okay. <laughs> I'm going to make it really clear in a little, little while that you're a part of the tribe. Don't worry. Just wait till we get to the end of the book. It's going to be fantastic. Why not resolve the tension? Well, because that interaction 
between Jesus and Peter has direct implications about what it means to be a disciple. Here we have the challenge issued to Peter to anyone who would follow Jesus. The challenge is if you want to be a part of my kingdom and you want to be part of one of my disciples, you have to give up your understanding of how the kingdom of God should come. You must give up what you think the Messiah should be like. You have to give up your understanding of what is good and life-giving and wonderful and life You have to give that up in order to trust me. Look what he says. Then Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will find, uh, for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory and his angels, uh, with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This literally happened with Simon of Cyrene. As Jesus was going to the cross, he was so beaten to a pulp, he literally could not carry it. And so they forced Simon of Cyrene, an innocent bystander, to come in and carry the cross of Jesus. And he followed on behind Jesus. He was literally following Jesus, caught up in who Jesus is. And so he bore the cross of Jesus. And that's an enacted parable for us. If you want to be a disciple, that's what it means. What does it mean in concrete terms? What it means is surrender your will to God's. Surrender your will to Jesus. That's what it means. If you through your intuition and wisdom and smarts, try to build for yourself life which you think is truly life, you will lose it. If you trade in your understanding of how to live the good life for Christ's lordship and his understanding of how to live the good life, if you give up, if you lose your life, your understanding of how to live life to the full, if you lose it, you will gain life. Because Jesus is the one we need to follow to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Trust him. If you happen to get on that boat with that woman that you proposed to, it would require, right, a surrendering of your will. You've proposed to her thinking of how glorious it's going to be. You've proposed to her with hopes and dreams in your heart. You've proposed to her probably already thinking about what kind of wedding you might have, where you might live, how wonderful your life together will be. We're going to walk along the beach with a, with a golden retriever and we'll have three kids and you know, we'll live in San Francisco. I love San Francisco. You've got all these pictures. And then she says, no, if you are going to marry me, it means giving that all up and jumping on a boat with me for 10 years. It'll completely change your plans for how to live the good life. And that is what Jesus is saying here. 
give up your understanding and submit to Christ's understanding. Sex before marriage. Going for that glorious promotion that earns you kudos and cash. Being self-absorbed as a dad or a mum just living for the weekend. Working as hard as you can to get the house of your dreams. Hustling to be in the perfect postcode with the perfect family, going to the perfect school, with the great vacations. These can all be received as good gifts from God. But if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, he says, trade in your plans for how to get the good life, what constitutes the good life, and follow me. But why would we? Why would we do that? Well, this comes back to the question, who do you think I am? Listen to what it says here in the, in, in the last verse. Truly I tell you, some of you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I don't want to completely unpack that, but basically what he's saying there is that you will see me. Some of you who I'm talking to right now, before you die, you will see my glory through the resurrection on the cross. Not only have you walked and talked with me, not only have plenty of people witnessed to all the miracles I've performed, not only do I fulfill Old Testament prophecy and scripture and testimony, but you will actually see me raised from the dead. My friends, I'm not asking you to jump on board on a wing of prayer. I'm asking you to trust in who you know I am. Follow me. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.